0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Economist.
1: Hello, I'm Andrew Palmer, the business affairs editor. And this week on Money Talks, Our Asia economics editor warns that China may be doomed to a debt crisis.
0: It's very difficult, very rare for a country to amass that amount of debt in that short of a time without encountering a serious problem.
1: We'll hear from a specialist on Game of Thrones about how the book's author deals with the realities of banking and economics.
2: He really has thought a lot about how finance underpins the quest for power, which is what really lies at the heart of the novels.
1: First, though, will the real Satoshi Nakamoto please stand up? Craig Stephen Wright, an Australian computer scientist, said this week that he, in fact, is the author of the white paper published in 2008 on Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency, and the writer of its first software. Ludwig Siegel, our technology editor, joins me now to discuss our take on whether or not Mr. Wright's claims stack up. Ludwig, Craig Wright talked to you for an Economist piece this week. What
3: did you make of his claims? So when I met him, he walked me through his cryptographic proof, the proof that shows that he has certain type of data that only Satoshi Nakamoto could have. That's the proof, basically. And it looked very legit. I mean, it looked as if it uh, checked out. I got a bit suspicious when I then put it to him, why don't you kind of take – I send you a message of an article of mine and you kind of sign this a message with your key and thus prove that you are Satoshi Nakamoto because that's kind of a more independent – a better – quality proof. He said, no, he wouldn't do that because it was too complicated. He didn't want to jump through those hoops. So what he was showing you was something which was much, much simpler, but less persuasive. Yeah, I mean, he, he basically had demonstrated to me, demonstrated that proof on, on his screen, on his computer. It seemed to work out. He had the right software. But I mean, these type of demonstrations can be stage managed. And, and I also have to say what kind of convinced me that there's something to the story is that Gavin Andreessen who is the successor to Satoshi as, as the lead developer of the Bitcoin community was, who sat for the same proof session, and he knows, of course, much more than I do about Bitcoin, and he's uh, agreed that it was legit, it worked out.
1: Okay, and then Craig Wright publishes uh, at the start of this week a blog post that basically provides more detail about the proof and how to how to validate it. That goes live, and pretty quickly, it appears, that proof starts
3: to crumble. Yes, so again, when I talked to him, he's, he said, I'm gonna show this to you now, and then I'm going to provide you with a blog post which explains it all, and you have time to write about it. And then I'm going to publish this on Monday morning. So he publishes his uh, uh, blog post, and it's more very weird, rambling text that doesn't really tell you anything. And not only that, then once it's published, people on Reddit a website uh, – and, and, and they have expert forums there on Bitcoin – pretty quickly find that a lot of the stuff he's, he shows is actually copied from a public source. So it's not at all, can't be the product of uh, somebody signing with the cryptographic key something and publishing it.
1: So what, what does that do to write story? Does that mean it's, you know, without the cryptographic proof, there is no reason to believe he's Satoshi?
3: Yes. I mean, it's hard to make that point that is, or to believe that he's Satoshi, if he doesn't, he can't prove that he is in possession of these uh, cryptographic keys. So what we did when it was kind of debunked his proof, his blog post, we asked him to sign a text we provide uh, with the private key he has uh, to prove that he is Satoshi. Uh, We put this to him uh, and he hasn't replied yet. But today, earlier today, uh, he said or his, his press handler said he will move some Bitcoin. Uh, some early uh, Bitcoin uh, kind of uh, which date from when when Satoshi was still around. Let me explain that. Satoshi owns a lot of Bitcoin. Of course, he has created Bitcoin, the system. And so he was among the early miners, miners meaning the the guys, the the computers that that produce or mint Bitcoin. And so these Bitcoin have never moved. They've never been used to pay something. And and they're worth like, uh, I think today's price is like $500 million dollars. And so if he moves any of these early bitcoins, that is somewhat of a proof that he's Satoshi, but not a complete proof. Somewhat. Yes, because, and that gets very complicated, these transactions could have been kind of generated years ago and never been used on the network. And so by pushing them out now, it may appear as if they this transaction is kind of done now. But actually it isn't. So yes, it would be very interesting if that indeed happened, if uh, Craig White indeed moved uh, Bitcoin. But I think a stronger proof would be if he sent Bitcoin to an address, let's say I give, provide him with a Bitcoin address, a bank account basically, a Bitcoin bank account. He sends me some Bitcoin And he sends them with a message I also provide that would also convince me much more that that, that he's Satoshi.
1: One one of the mysteries here is that, you know, to the public world at least, Craig Wright has not done enough to prove his identity. But to people who are very high up in the Bitcoin community, um, he apparently has. We continue to have people saying they think he is satoshi
3: how do you explain that the person you're alluding to i mean i think i mentioned him, gavin Andresen, so the successor to satoshi nakamoto so he said for the same proof session i said through he knows much more He got the proof or the the, the signature, which is produced when you use the key to to, to sign a digital document. He got that on a thumb drive. He bought a new clean computer. They did it. It checked out. And that's why Gavin Andreessen is still convinced that uh, Craig Wright is uh, Satoshi Nakamoto. What he can't explain, and I talked to him yesterday, but he can't explain why this uh, rambling blog post. Though I've since heard from somebody that Craig Wright says that actually it was the wrong version which was posted of the blog post which I think is really not credible. And there's a broader
1: context here too, which is there is a sort of governance row going on within Bitcoin. Potentially
3: this feeds into that. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the background. So there's this big fight within the Bitcoin community of developers mostly and, and Bitcoin companies, how to scale Bitcoin, how to make it bigger, because it's it's hitting, hitting the buffers. And you have to make certain technical changes to do that, and there's a group of developers to say, oh, we have to be very careful, we sh- and we should keep that small because that keeps kind of <clears throat> Bitcoin a decentralized system that can't be controlled. And the other side says uh, uh, we have to kind of make sure that it grows quickly because otherwise people won't use it, and even if Bitcoin becomes more of a conventional payment system that doesn't matter, it's worth to, it's worth to grow it. And so there, there's some suspicions that uh, the timing of uh, Craig Wright trying to out himself is linked to that, that he's wants to try to influence that debate, he has a clear opinion. He, When he talked to me, he said he wants the system to scale, to grow quickly, and, and he probably, if he is the real Satoshi, he would probably not hesitate to make his, his opinions known.
1: And whatever happens, this story sort of continues, right? Either Craig Wright manages to assuage the doubters, and that means he is Satoshi, and some um, interesting questions flow from that, and we look for further research, for example, or he isn't, and then more Satoshis potentially pop up in the in the future. This goes on and on.
3: My guess is what's going to happen. He will move some coins, Craig Wright. Uh, there will be questions about whether the, this is the real proof, and so it goes on. And then he may do something else, and the whole story will go on, and, and the question then, of course, becomes, does it matter? At some point, it, it'll fade, and perhaps at some point, a new Satoshi appears and uh, has a better proof.
1: Ludwig Siegel, thank you. Thank you. And if you have theories on who the real Satoshi Nakamoto might be, whether it's Mr. Wright or not, do tweet us at Economist Radio or find us on Facebook. We move on now to China. Early this year, the depreciation of the Yuan, albeit mild, sent shockwaves around the world.
2: International competitiveness stays strong. Therefore... There is no basis for persistent RMB depreciation.
1: That's China's central bank governor, Zhou Xiaochuan, in February, emphasising China's resilience despite the fall of the RMB, or yuan. But does another crisis, deeper and more serious, loom? In a special report this week on finance in China, our Asia economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, argues there are huge problems underlying the country's financial system and that they could have global effects. Simon joins us now from Shanghai... Simon, the title of your report is Big But Brittle. So how vulnerable is China's financial system?
0: Well, the big vulnerability in the Chinese financial system comes from all of the debt that's been accumulated over the last decade. Uh, Before the global financial crisis, China's debt to GDP was about 150%. Uh, These days, it's closer to 260%. If you go through global economic history, it's very difficult, very rare for a country to amass that amount of, of debt in that short of a time without encountering a serious problem, be it a real financial crisis uh, or a very steep slowdown in growth. China has gotten to a point where it's really a question of when, not if, uh, for a financial crisis. And when you look at the financial system, the obvious place to start is the banking system, Officially, they report that bad debt uh, is just about 1.7% roughly of, of, of their loan books. But when you look at debt at risk, uh, officially they say it's already closer to 5.5%. Uh, and people who've looked more closely at the books of, of Chinese banks uh, would say that, in fact, for smaller banks, it's probably already 10%. Uh, and that's only accumulating. So this, this is a big concern, and it's only getting bigger.
1: And as you say, the banks are the obvious place to look, the visible part of the financial system. But I want to move on now to other sorts of money lending uh, in China.
2: The small companies have risk. So who wants to put the money into risky companies? And that really creates opportunity for the so-called shadow bank.
1: That's Suzy Wu, who runs an investment firm in China. Simon, we heard there about the rapid rise of shadow banking. And in your report, you say in one rural town, they sprouted up like bamboo shoots after a spring rain. Tell us more about the emergence and the rapid growth of this part of the financial system.
0: I think with shadow banking, it's important to break it into two periods. So for a long time, uh, private companies have struggled to access credit in China. So there is always a, a demand for non-bank lending And that's where the the point in the report about the entrepreneurs in a small town um, seeking lending from curbside lenders from non-official banks, that was the real start of shadow banking. It it grew more quickly after the financial crisis because China realized that too much uh, lending had occurred through the banking system. So it knew a problem was developing. It told its banks to slow down. But at the same time, it didn't want to pay the price of a credit slowdown, And so it encouraged tacitly shadow banks, non-bank financial institutions like trust companies to pick up the slack. Uh, And what's really worrying about the shadow banking system now is if it was just the small institutions outside of the banking sector that were providing the credit, that would be one thing. Uh, But what's really started to happen is that the banks themselves have really begun to grow their off-balance sheet assets. They themselves have begun to dabble very, very heavily in shadow banking, which means that the risks of the shadow banking sector uh, are spreading throughout the financial system.
1: And even as that part of the financial system grows, there's another set of um, developments, which is in the capital markets. We saw last year China's stock markets dominate the news. Bond markets are also growing. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Capital markets ought to be a good thing for China, for, for any economy. Uh, they're They're more transparent. It's easier for investors to price risk. It also forces companies to have better corporate governance because of all the disclosure requirements. So we should want to see China's capital markets developing and developing healthily. The problem is that because of the nature of the system and the the pervasive belief that the government stands behind uh, all forms of credit, especially state-owned borrowers, the capital markets have been developing in a very, very distorted way. Uh, We saw the extreme bubble, followed by the collapse of the stock market and the frantic efforts by the government to prop it up last year. What is even more worrying is that the bond market uh, is becoming a much bigger source of credit, and uh, yields until recently had fallen awfully low. Uh, The spread between risky credit uh, and uh, not risky credit had tightened. It was very, very narrow, the, the credit spread. And a lot of leverage, which was one of the big sources of the bubble in the stock market last year was seeping into the bond market as well. So China should be developing its capital markets, but the way in which they're developing are a big source of concern.
1: You add all these things together, you know, rising leverage, opacity, volatility. Are we heading to a crisis?
0: At this point, given all the problems that have accumulated in the financial system, it is a question of when, not if, China will have something resembling a crisis. There is a question about how the crisis will play out, how big it will be, the impact that will have. The general assumption is that If China were to begin to grasp the nettle and to address the problems now, it would be painful, but it still has the capacity to overcome some of the the bigger problems. If it delays and it waits several years more, uh, debt to GDP at that point will be well beyond 300%. Uh, The vulnerabilities that are developing in both the shadow banking and the banking system and the capital markets will be that much more severe. And at that point, it will be a much more serious crisis.
1: Simon Rabinovich, thank you very much. Now on to our final segment. Money Talks will now occasionally look at the economics of popular culture. And this week, we'll venture into the fictional world of Game of Thrones, a popular TV series adapted from novels written by George R.R. Martin. What can the books and the show teach us about the economics of kingdom building? To find out, our own Anne McElvoy spoke to Dr. Carolyn Larrington down the line from Oxford University. Carolyn is the author of Winter is Coming, the medieval world of Game of Thrones, and began by asking her why Game of Thrones is so different to other fantasy novels and TV adaptations.
2: I think it's because George Martin is really interesting in building a world which seems real, which has depth. And that means he has to be interested in economics, he has to be interested in social structures, and he has to be interested in politics, and particularly how these
4: things work in the medieval context. And he was quite critical of Tolkien, the great fantasy novelist, for not thinking enough about things like tax policies. What is that difference? Well, he does make the point in
2: uh, an important interview he did in 2014 that um, Tolkien thinks having the right person as king is enough. That solves all the problems of the kingdom. But Martin is very clear that there has to be tax policies. There are consequences if you decide to default on the payments which you owe to your largest creditor. That if you have to build yourself a new navy, all of a sudden you've got to find the resources to do that. And that's the kind of thing you just don't find in other fantasy novels.
4: And apart from that interest in economics, give us, if you could, a bit of a primer on Game of Thrones for the uninitiated and where the money stuff fits in. Well,
2: there are two principal continents in the world of Game of Thrones. There's Westeros, which is very much like medieval England with medieval France and Spain sort of bolted onto it. And then there's Essos, which is like the Eurasian landmass. And the series is mostly interested in the battle for the throne of Westeros. But it's also interested in various institutions, which are present both in Westeros and Essos. And the key problem, if you like, for the series, is who holds the Iron Throne, who is trying to take it, and what the role of the Iron Bank of Bravos is in funding the candidates who are trying to wrest the throne away from the family that has it at the moment.
4: The Iron Bank of Bravos. it doesn't sound like a place I would willingly put my deposits. Characterise the Bank of Bravos for me, if you could. Well, it's a well-known saying in the
2: world of the, the show that the Iron Bank of Bravos always gets its due. It's rather like the Italian banking houses of the I suppose 13th 14th centuries in Europe. It seems to hold an extremely large amount of currency, both the currency of the cities in Essos, but also clearly it has large reserves of the currency of Westeros as well. And the crown of Westeros as things stands owes an enormous amount of money to the Iron Bank, who has essentially been
4: offering it overdraft facilities for years. And now they've stopped their repayments. Well, that reminds me of a tweet we got from Al Marsh, who said that it was clearly a bank ripe for greater regulation, indeed to be referred to financial services authorities. But what about the characters and how they then interplay in that great struggle for the throne? Queen Mother Cersei, she decides to default on an enormous debt to rebuild her navy. Yes, and her reasons for doing
2: this look perhaps not not so disastrous as a, a strategic move, but primarily it's because she's jealous of her new daughter-in-law, who belongs to the house which has an active navy, and which is supposed to be an ally of Queen Cersei's own house, but she doesn't really trust them, and so she wants to rebuild the navy which was destroyed at the huge battle of Blackwater Bay. And in order to do this, she simply announces that they won't pay what they owe to the Iron Bank, which of course provokes the Iron Bank to think that it might be a good idea to support other candidates for the Iron Throne, very much on the understanding that people like Stannis Baratheon, the brother of the late king, will agree to take on those outstanding debts.
4: You've probably got half of the audience nodding along and the other half thinking, who on earth is she on about? But what about the role of of money more generally? Uh, an expert on thrononomics said to me that he couldn't understand where the money supply came from. There was no central bank across any of these kingdoms. Well, in a sense, you don't need a central bank where
2: currency isn't actually quite so important because a lot of the economic activity in Westeros and indeed in Essos is simply a matter of barter, that people are exchanging goods and services, the poorer people are producing agricultural products and simply handing them over to the local lords as part of a kind of rent system. But it seems that the currency in Westeros at least is regulated by the master of coin who has oversight of it and he does doesn't seem to need central banking facilities. After all, medieval England didn't have a central bank.
4: So you think George Martin is in the clear there, or not having a central bank to pump money around these these great kingdoms and their wars? Yeah, I think
2: so because uh, after all, England didn't have a central bank until the seventeenth century. And of course, before that, there were certainly problems about the, the viability of the currency in terms of forgery, in terms of clipping money and, uh, and debasing it by alloying it with different kinds of non-precious material. But in the end, if people will accept the coins, then you can make a currency system work, it seems to me. And that's
4: what happens in Westeros. Rasmus Hald uh, tweeted to say, does it matter for the economy who is on the throne you have good economic rulers in these sagas and particularly bad ones? I
2: think it probably does matter who's on the throne in so far as the small council which does the actual ruling is probably they're the people who make the main decisions. And either you can have a king who leaves them well alone and spends his time hunting and, and drinking and they make good decisions or bad decisions Or you have a king who interferes, or you have somebody like Cersei who really doesn't understand fiscal policy and thinks things to herself like, we'll start our own bank and we'll call it the Golden Bank of Lannisport. And you ask yourself, well, what are you going to use for deposits, Cersei? You haven't got any money.
4: I think we have covered some economies like that over the years in our finance section, in The Economist, now you come to mention it. I wondered, as an expert on both Tolkien and George Martin, whether you think that Tolkien was maybe right to leave out the economics. It's quite hard to build a compelling fantasy if we find ourselves coming back to these questions about money supply and who's doing the banking. I think Tolkien just wasn't really interested
2: in the minutiae of how you build a world. He was interested in larger moral questions of good and evil. But Martin is a historian by training. He's not a Uh, a literature specialist and so he really has thought a lot about how finance underpins the quest for power which is what really lies at the heart of the novels.
4: So what do you think the economic outlook is like for Essos and Westeros? Essos I think is going to be fine but I think Westeros is going to be in deep
2: trouble At least in the show, the gold reserves are running out, so there's very little to back any further um, production of currency. And the export business has collapsed, not only because they can't get credit across the sea, but also the continual war over the last few years in the series means that they have no agricultural products.
4: And The Economist would take a very stern view of that. Thank you, Caroline Larrington.
1: That was Anne McElvoy talking to Caroline Larrington. And you can find Caroline's article... Game of Loans, online at 1843magazine.com, the home of our bi-monthly magazine of ideas, culture, and lifestyle. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. I'm Andrew Palmer. Do join us again next time. Goodbye.